Welcome to A Shot in the Arm. I'm your host, Ben Plumley, and this is the podcast that explores issues in global health and human rights. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, Spotify and Stitcher. Subscribe to us on Facebook, YouTube and Twitter at Shot Arm Podcast. And if you like us, give us five stars. In this week's episode, we're joined again by regular contributor David Evans, and we're going to look at the state of antibiotic research around the world, the impact that it has on health and diet. And we're also going to look at news coming out of the southern states in the United States about anti-abortion legislation. David, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ben. Glad to be here. How are you? No, not bad, thank you. Look, before we get into this, I just wanted to ask, have you seen the latest HBO miniseries, Chernobyl? Yes, and I was horrified and captivated. Mm -hmm. So everyone has an English accent, again, for HBO. It's like Britain was run by Jeremy Corbyn 30 years ago. <laughs> but but the thing that really struck me, and have you got to episode two yet? I haven't. I've only gotten to episode one. I'm always behind oh, on these things. Well, well, no spoilers. But basically, in episode two, we're introduced to Emily Watson, who plays a nuclear physicist. And she walks up to this party official and says, hello, my name's Emily Watson, and I'm a nuclear physicist. And, and she basically... She anticipates everything that's going on. And I think, how the hell did I not know about this woman? I followed the Chernobyl disaster really closely, you know, since it happened. So just as I was about to Google it, we go to the the making of Chernobyl. And it turns out she's a completely fictional character. And she describes herself as representing the hundreds of Soviet scientists that worked on identifying the problem across the Soviet Union of Chernobyl and the problems with the the nuclear reactors. And I and I thought, well, why was this? Why completely eradicate this cadre of scientific excellence? It seemed to me really sloppy and lazy. And it it, it struck me that this is what happens when facts don't fit your narrative. So I was completely worked up about this. And and it's sort of our lead into antibiotics research. It, it perhaps explains part of the human psyche, why we, we don't seem able to take research seriously enough. So a, a bit of background for us. 90 years ago, 1928, 29, we enter the age of antibiotics as Alexander Fleming, the Scottish scientist, discovers penicillin. Penicillin becomes widespread in 1942. There follows a flourishing of medical research, and it's just as transformational as the gas-powered engine and perhaps just as challenging for humanity. But as we won't to do, humans misuse it. And here we are, 2019, and the WHO says antibiotic resistance is one of the biggest threats to global health, food security, and development. So, so David, how badly do you read the situation currently? It's really, really bad, Ben. <laughs> you know, looking at just the U.S. for a moment, the National Institutes of Health estimates that more than 2 min million people are infected each year with an antimicrobial-resistant bacteria, and that at a minimum, 23,000 people die. 
But this is actually an underestimate because tens of thousands of people more are likely to die from complications. And so uh, when my mom had her first knee replaced and we were looking through all the instructions, I found out something that I hadn't known, which is that she needs to be on an antibiotic anytime she goes to the dentist. Otherwise, she could get an infection and she could die. And so when people are exposed to an antibiotic, a drug-resistant strain of a bacteria, even just something as simple as a knee replacement can kill them. So this is a big deal. But, but also globally, we just know so much less. And particularly outside of middle and income and, and, and high income countries where surveillance is more common, we just don't know. And, and especially as antibiotic use in raising poultry and cattle uh, throughout the world has gr- is growing quite rapidly, you know, it, we're already in the midst of a crisis within high income countries. And the thought that we could be in the midst of a global crisis is just truly terrifying. So two things. I mean, this isn't just a medical crisis. It's a food security agricultural crisis. And I noted that Alexander Fleming had predicted that this might happen. And so, so what's your take? Why don't you think we acted in the 40s and 50s? The worst part of all this is that the genie is out of the bottle. And so, you know, simply limiting antibiotic use now and going forward is not going to put the genie back in. And I I think what Fleming was talking about and predicting was (laughs) just as with Chernobyl, just as with so many things going through human history, you know, you have hubris and ignorance on one side and greed on the other. And, you know, the hubris came from those in power, both in the scientific and the medical establishment just predicting that drug discovery would continue to outpace any possible resistance in the organisms. And simply flooding the world with these wonder drugs would continue to contribute to population-level lifespan, which, which really was dramatic during that golden era. Um, the lifespan increased tremendously. But it was also an ignorance of a sort of basic understanding of the genetics of the of the bacteria. We didn't know really much about gene swapping, that you could have these, you know, organisms in close proximity that were actually sharing genes as they mutated and developing these sort of superbugs. And we didn't know a lot about the genetic evolution and how it would impact the sort of internal external structure of these bacteria. And the greed part came from the pharmaceutical industry, the hospitals and the doctors that prescribed them in large quantities, and then the agriculture businesses, which found that if you gave antibiotics to your pigs or your cattle, you would get a higher yield. Less of them would die. They would get bigger and you could sell them for more. And so it was just this, this, it wasn't a quiet storm. It was just, it was a storm. Do you know, it reminds me of a comment And this was the Chinese AIDS advocate, Thomas Kai, who was shaking his head in absolute wonder and and horror that in a particular country in East Africa, some farmers were suggesting that perhaps they ought to get their hands on AZT as they saw the transformations that were happening in people who were infected from HIV going from the so-called slim disease to becoming healthy again. And well, if we gave our chickens AZT, uh, AZT, maybe they would grow faster. Most extraordinary. So what do you think a a post-antibiotic world would look like? Do you think we'd go back to the way we were? Or are there perhaps even bigger risks for us after after antibiotics are gone? Well, I, th- I think it's both. You know, I think the most apt comparison is when you look at the most deadly war in sort of 
pre-1900, the Civil War in the United States, that was a war where simple wounds would kill a soldier. Fast forward to what was considered the Great War, the World, you know, World War One. Again, you would have soldiers in the trenches with an ingrown toenail that would grow deadly and gangrene, and they would, you know, at at best lose a limb, at worst die of sepsis. And then you have World War Two after the introduction of penicillin. And far few soldiers die, fewer soldiers died as a consequence. And, and so you had a, a death toll that, that continued to diminish. So the most extreme circumstances, but even just in, in the sort of contemporary world, modern surgery would, in most cases, be nearly impossible. Um, many millions of women would die in childbirth. Many infants born to those women would die. And hospitals and other places of, of supposed healing would actually be you know, the sources for great sickness and death, as in some limited cases they are growing to be. And so I worry about what that that world would look like. But I think when you combine the fact of the mobilization in the most populous parts of our globe from the farm to the city, you're talking about incredible intermingling masses where these drug-resistant strains could flourish in ways that they never have before. So presumably, the world is preparing for this. We're on top of this. Um, (laughs) What do you make of the state of research? On the one hand, it, it is a place of optimism for me, which is that the wonders of modern medicine and the wonders of modern bio, you know, biomedical science truly are wonders. And, you know, I grew up an artist. I wanted nothing to do with, with science and, and I am utterly captivated. And one of the reasons is I'm captivated by the progress. I'm captivated by the passion among the scientists who are truly doing what seems impossible to a scientist only a decade before. So, on that sense, I do have hope that you have these incredibly brilliant people doing this incredible work, and it's happening globally. On the other hand, I also look at the the limitations that we don't expect we're going to bump up against. So, for instance, there was this great amount of excitement, and I knew you were going to ask about this, about gene therapies and really understanding, decoding the human gene. And one of the things that turned out to be the case is that, you know, the genes are kind of the books in the library, but you need the librarians to decide, you know, how to put the books back or how to take them out. And that's something called epigenetics or the things that are on the outside of the books that decide whether they get read or not. And and we knew about epigenetics because we knew that, you know, a certain cell, which could become any cell in our body, would become a hair cell and grow hair or develop our legs as we're gestating. And But then those cells would turn off. That's also part of the epigenetic process outside the genes. Uh, it turns them on, turns them off. What we didn't realize, though, is how extensive that process is, how manipulatable that process is. So one example that we found out was that Dutch people who went through the famine in World War II developed, you know, this this tendency to turn on genes to store fat. And what ended up happening is their children and their grandchildren were far more likely to become obese because of this this impact of the environment one or two generations before. So there there are so many things that we just didn't know that we thought we knew. And and it's affecting drug development. Yeah, it's it's extraordinary, isn't it, about our 
ability, you mentioned hubris, our ability to be so confident, so cocksure about what we're doing, when in fact, we're really just entering into a new biotechnology revolution. Absolutely. You know, I knew you were going to ask me this question about drug development. And and I have to say that when I looked at the Pew Foundation, which publishes a, a report every year on drugs and development for particularly antimicrobial resistant strains of bacteria, the just looking at the phase three studies, which are those that are farthest along, it didn't inspire a ton of confidence in that in this chart where it says where the drugs are, there, there's a column that is related to whether the drug is, is helpful against drug-resistant bacteria. And unfortunately, in these phase three studies of these new drugs, the column that should say, yes, they work, it says no or maybe, it far, far too often. And that concerns me. I'm really interested in the sort of the journey from A to B and that bit in the middle about how we get there. And, and some of the research that, that excited me was, you know, these sort of interim incremental improvements, like squeezing the best or, or the last bit of use that we could get from our antibiotics and particularly looking at something that they call the beta-lactam ring, which is sort of, you know, going back to our Game of Thrones analogy from last week, that sort of battle at, you know, the icy castle, I forget the name and who cares particularly. Oh, the Red Keep. The Red right. Keep, thank you. But it was it's so interesting to see that if we lose our hubris, if we put that to one side and just sort of get on with the job, it's really interesting what we can look at and what we can achieve while we have these longer term, longer term goals. And so as you look at the portfolio of research that's coming out, what interests you perhaps the most? What, what, notwithstanding these disappointing phase three results that seem to be emerging, what are you looking out for? Well, I think on two fronts. So one of them is, as you talked about, where our ability to take video down to the most microscopic level is allowing us to look at the impact of putting chemicals um, in proximity to bacteria and and to and you know antibiotics in this case and what's happening in real time, and and it's producing some really fascinating insights that can impact drug development where we might take. Uh, drugs or slight tweaks to existing drugs that might have been shunted aside where we could maybe put them back into the forefront. So I, I think that's one thing that excites me is that these sort of diagnostic devices that allow, or not diagnostics, but this this technology to view things, to manipulate things, in some ways is far more exciting, but doesn't really get the the front page play that a drug does. But the other part of it is one example is there was a paper published last year that it said that an approved antipsychotic drug, something that's already on the market, plus something that the researchers called in quotes, naturally occurring substance, could actually disrupt this gene swapping between the different bacteria. And it's that gene swapping that accelerates the process by which these bacteria become resistant to the drugs. And so rather than focus on the bacteria themselves, it's manipulating the environment which in, within which they kind of trade these genes. And that it was actually quite potent, one of the only things they had ever seen to do this. And, and, and they said it was sort of like a lark that the researcher that took it on just was kind of poking and prodding scientifically. And even he was surprised at the outcome. So, so I think that there are things like that where instead of just poking at the virus and, or rather the bacteria directly, we're, we're looking at manipulating the environment. So I, I think that's pretty exciting. 
And if we go back to what we do in the meantime, while our scientists are having a lark, love that word, you know, the WHO has been very, very clear. But as is often the case, no one's taking any notice. Why do you think that is? It comes down to business interests. As I, as I said, well, some of it is, is ignorance. But honestly, I do see some, some signs of improvement. I do think there's greater public awareness. And certainly clinicians are far more aware that indiscriminate use and, and prescription of antibiotics is incredibly harmful and is causing situations where you have these drug-resistant bacteria bacterial infections flourishing in hospital settings and nursing homes and that sort of thing, because they're out there just in the world more more broadly. So I, I think that's happening. There's greater public awareness. I think there's also greater awareness, not only of the use of the drugs in, in people, there's also greater awareness that these, these drugs are in our food supply. And I think it's causing people Right now, more in high-income countries where there's a lot of choice among a, a, a more extensive middle and upper class uh, to make different choices about the foods that they're purchasing. And that affects the market, at least in those countries. And so I, I think that's having some downstream effects that right now are too small, but might one day be larger. And so I, I, I think that there is more attention being played. It's just not fast enough, and it's not as big as I would like to see. You know, and another thing that you point to that we really need to to think about is what's happening in, in lower middle income countries and the role of pharmacies, private pharmacies, where there is limited health education and knowledge and the distribution of medicines, of antibiotics that, you know, in the United States, Europe and more developed economies would be would be prescribed. And, and so that's something we really have to get our heads around. But let's talk about agriculture for a moment, which, you know, is obviously as critical to human survival as health itself. Why don't we just become vegetarians? <laughs> well, for one thing, what we find is that strict adherence to a vegetarian diet when there are meat alternatives available easily to people, they tend to go for the meat. And that's partly because of the way it tastes. It's often a status symbol. And so they, those kinds of things are work against us. But in a sense, you're also asking the wrong person. My grandparents on both sides were from southern states in the United States. And frankly, if you grow up there, if it doesn't have gravy on top, usually made with lard, it really isn't a meal worth having. And so bacon also is the gateway drug back to the world of meat eating for so many vegetarians. And, and frankly, in the United States, less than 10% of vegetarians are able to continue and persist with that, that diet over a long period of time. And the number of people who are truly vegan is even smaller. So I think part of it actually, though, has to do with how foods taste and the expectations we have about taste, as well as, as access to high calorie foods that are important for all of us to stay alive. And I think that if Vegetables and fruits tasted better, were more easily accessible and easier to make and quicker to make. We would be more readily placed to diminish our dependence on meat products or things made with meat products than on vegetables. And, I, and one thing that's hopeful to me is Fuji apples. And I'm a perfect example where I despise 
buys red delicious apples. But when I was growing up, even up to the point of, I would say 10 years ago, when you walked into a standard grocery store or certainly a corner market, you had two choices of apples. And that was Granny Smith's, which had no sugar in them at all, or Red Delicious, which also had no sugar, but were mealy and disgusting. Now, the first apple you see when you walk into a produce aisle in a supermarket are Fuji apples, which actually taste good. And and to me, actually can compete with many other things for dessert. And they're actually even less expensive or very close in price to a Red Delicious apple, which at one point were ubiquitous all across the United States. And so I am seeing a pressure on the part of the consumer to make agriculture produce things that actually taste good, that people might want to eat. But I think the other part of it is, and again, from a personal experience, is making sure that these good tasting, healthy, non-meat products are easy to put on your table. And my husband, who is self-admittedly a non-cook, who boiling water makes him afraid to to do, he used to scoff when I would tell him that I didn't have time to make a chopped salad. So I challenged him to make one himself. And it took him nearly an hour from the moment he took the vegetables out of the refrigerator to the moment we sat down to eat. And, you know, I can do that in 20 to 25 minutes. But if it's been a 12 hour day and I'm tired and I want to eat and I'm starving, that can seem daunting. And so we would order pizza instead. So I think that's the other part is is access. It tastes good and it's affordable. And so I think until we can solve that problem, we'll have problems. You know, you talk about chopped salad. If you're going to do it from scratch, or are you going to buy a bag from a supermarket? And it's the packaging and the process of getting to the chopping that that becomes really key. And and that sort of brings us, you know, to the question of of climate change and how we interrelate with that. Um, I recently met a young progressive advocate called Eliza Nemser, who is a geologist and knows this stuff inside out. And she is really concerned about the way in which climate change is forcing radical disruptions in the way we provide health and the health priorities. And I hope we're going to have her on the show in a couple of weeks. And, and it just highlights to me that we have to do a much better job of connecting with other issues. And so we cannot uh, end this podcast without looking at what's happening in the southern states of the United States, and particularly the decision by the Alabama legislature to ban all abortion, basically setting up a fight with the US Supreme Court. It's the handmaid's tale, right? Absolutely. And it terrifies me. I, I mean, I'm a pacifist, but I grew up with these pious, hateful, intolerant religious extremists like you see in The Handmaid's Tale. And, you know, being a pacifist, there was part of me that shuddered when Aunt Lydia got kicked down the stairs and stabbed. But there was part of me that kind of rejoiced, to be honest. And and the thing is, I don't think it's morally or ethically problematic to have conflicted feelings about abortion. But I watched the rise of the religious right throughout the 1980s as, as a teenager until the, pres- the present. I saw these disgusting people like Ralph Reed and others make it a platform to deny women the basic human right of being able to choose what to do with their own bodies, which you would hope would be something we don't question. But, you know, with Brett Kavanaugh added to the courts and the U.S. Senate so polarized, even if Ruth Bader Ginsburg lives to be 110, it makes me nervous. And, you know, even when the court was less 
completely to the right in total, abortion rights were already getting whittled away to the point where access to abortion is frightfully scarce in many parts of the United States. And so I don't think that progressives or, or, or even centrists can afford to sit timidly on the sideline on this issue. And what was once considered the center is really, honestly, it's now liberal. And if so if you have liberal Catholics, you know, who can strongly affirm a woman's right to have an abortion to choose, we need them to do it loudly. And we need them to put their beliefs on the line politically and economically. And, and I think this is why it's, it's really so important for people like us, two gay men who perhaps, you know, this isn't directly our issue, it would seem. Yet it's so important for us to embrace this. Uh, this is to me the most important political issue of our generation. I mean, you know, climate change is is really there and something we have to deal with. But right now, as an emergency, defending the reproductive rights and health of women is to me the number one priority. We're going to track what happens and what groups like Planned Parenthood and local Alabama and, and Georgia reproductive health uh, activists need from us to support us. But it's it's all a bit under his eye, it's all a bit Margaret Atwood, which, by the way, reminds me that uh, the next season of The Handmaid's Tale starts in June. So an unashamed plug for Margaret Atwood. Yeah, you know, it just... Quickly, one of the things that an activist, a really prominent Los Angeles AIDS activist told me, she um, was one of the founding members of Act Up Los Angeles. She said that the reason she got involved was not even because she had a, a close, close friend who was living with HIV, but because gay men had so vociferously fought alongside of her for women's rights, and particularly the right to choose, and helped in front of clinics to ensure that women could get safely into the clinic. And it, and it was seeing that kind of solidarity that caused her to feel such a great sense of responsibility. So I, I know it's it probably sounds very trite and, you know, very Northern California, but, you know, we are in it together. No, we are. There's There's no question about that. And it's something that we in a shot in the arm podcast are absolutely going to come come back to well i think that's it for this week david that's a wrap thanks everybody for listening david thank you so much for your insights thanks to eric espera and news.media for producing this episode you can find us on apple podcasts google play music spotify and stitcher and don't forget, Ben, people can subscribe and like us at at Shot Arm Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. And if you like us, don't forget to give us five stars. Great. Well, have a wonderful week, David, and thanks very much. Thanks, Ben. You too.